we're not in school except for Aaron. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, series for the summer, we uh, put our heads together, and by we, I mean mostly me, but some consultation with the other staff. And uh, we're going to do an eight-week series called The Glossary of Grace. Sort of a uh, primer, if you will, about the heart of Christianity. What is the good news of the gospel? So what we did is we sat together. We didn't really sit. We, we emailed back and forth um, and, and shared some ideas about what are the, the really important words the Bible gives us about the gospel, the good news of what God's done for us. And we sort of came to rest with you know, eight to ten terms and uh, figured out how to put them together. So over the next eight weeks, we're going to look at one maybe two words each week that uh, the Bible uses pretty often uh, that's really important, really vital to the heart of Christianity. Some of these are like $5 words. You know, multiple syllable, sounds really fancy, therefore sounds like maybe above your head, maybe not that important, maybe only super spiritual people use these words. Uh, the reality is uh, they're, they're, they're important words. Uh, that have to do with the, the real heart of what God has done for us. And uh, if you don't know what they mean, that's great. That's why we're doing this. It's a glossary. So we're going to talk about eight of those terms. And uh, hopefully by uh, doing so, some of you will have a little more clarity, a little more sharpness, a little more thankfulness for what God's done for you. And some of the others of you may have a better picture of what Christianity is all about by the time we're done. So that's the goal. Um, for us to have a better understanding of the gospel so that we would uh, love God more. And uh, pretty much every night what we'll do is we'll get together, we'll eat. I'll do a short lesson. This is not going to be the, the long sermons uh, you're used to, perhaps. And then uh, I'm going to try and just do a little Q&A. We'll see if you have any questions for me or whoever else might be teaching. And then we'll break up in small groups and you guys can chat for as short or as long as you want to. So that's how we're going to do it. And uh, tonight we're going to start with the word grace. It's a glossary of grace, and uh, in some ways, every word we're going to talk about over the next eight weeks uh, is in the ballpark of grace. Uh, Grace, if you will, is the umbrella for all the words and all the things and all the ideas that we're going to talk about. But it would be good to just uh, get an introduction to the term and the idea in the reality itself, uh, because this word is very important, because it goes to the heart of the way God uh, relates to his children. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, we're gonna, if you have a Bible, open it. If you don't have a Bible, we have a bunch of them. Anybody want one or four? No. There we go. Bibles. We're in Ephesians. Which is about three quarters of the way through, maybe more like four fifths of the way through. Got to be some sharing, perhaps. Anybody else? Good. Ephesians chapter two. So it's sort of hard to pick one. While you're turning there, it's sort of hard to pick one text to talk about grace uh, because there are lots and lots and lots of texts that directly talk about the subject of grace or illustrate grace. And there's an argument. There's a real sense in which all the texts of the Bible, because they are telling us the grand story of what God has done to bring people to Himself, there's a sense in which the whole Bible is about grace. Um, but I decided to pick one a little more clear than that. So we're in Ephesians chapter two. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. And I'll talk about it for a few minutes. And then you can grill me if you like. Not like grill. Yeah. 
<laughs> my family, but really disappointed. Okay, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 to 10. These are the letters, uh, the words of Paul to the church in Ephesus. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, I'm going to pray, and if uh, you'd like, you can join me. Uh, good Father, we thank you for the chance to get together in, uh, in the midst of our summer and uh, to begin uh, to jump into an exploration of uh, of grace, of uh, of your heart of love toward your people and what you've done for us. And uh, as we gather tonight, study your word, we pray that you would show us great things in it, uh, hard things for sure in this text. Uh, so grant us the strength and honesty to, to stare those truths in the face and, and wrestle with them. Uh, but also grant us eyes and, uh, and hearts to see the good news here and, uh, and to believe and uh, to, to come to know your character and your love and in deeper and perhaps even for some of us newer ways and we ask these things in your name jesus amen all right uh before i jump in i should have done this before just sort of like two provisos proviso number one i'm recording this uh for posterity's sake so if if this doesn't if this isn't completely terrible i'll throw it up on the website so other people can listen to it if they want to uh, and then uh two it's always the case in ruf that we don't assume that everyone's on the same page uh, so, uh, if, you know, this is the first time you've ever heard this text. You don't know what's going on, or you find it offensive. What I want you to know is that's no surprise. Um, text is hard for everyone, actually, that reads it honestly, and that uh, we we welcome all kinds of folks, including people that think we're crazy, um, or disagree with us, or are in process, or trying to figure out what this is, or are confused, or really believe it and love it. Uh, we're we're used to the whole gamut. And RUF. This also means that uh, your friends are welcome here. Uh, no matter what they think or believe, we'd love to have them as we sit and try to figure out what God is saying to us and has done for us. All right, so uh, when, when it comes to the topic of grace, at least in this text, there's really two, two realities that we have to wrestle with, come to grips with, and uh, or two key ideas. And I'll just sort of sum it up by saying that grace here means it's an, an undeserved gift. Um, I, I, it's a big topic. I say a lot of things, but I'll just start with undeserved gift. And uh, the first idea is it's undeserved that uh, we don't deserve God's goodness or grace at all. And uh, Paul goes at, <laughs> to great lengths, it seems, in the first couple of verses uh, to make that clear. And it's a little painful. But as you start reading in verse one and two and three, uh, you don't have the most flattering picture of humanity. And uh, 
you know, if this offends you, hold on, we'll come back to that in a moment. But what Paul is saying about us morally here is really important. He's saying in verse 1, when he says, you're dead in the trespasses and sins of which you once walked, he's talking to people, the Ephesians, who are now Christians, who he no longer considers dead. They've, they've joined Jesus and the new life. But before they did so, they were morally incapable of improving themselves, that uh, they had hearts um, that love sin, and that were morally incapable of restarting themselves aright and rightly relating to God. They had hearts that were thoroughly given over to breaking God's law. Uh, doing what's wrong. That, that word trespass, yeah, I, I grew up in the South and in rural places, and I didn't have a good idea what sin meant. I just knew it was doing things I wasn't supposed to do, but I knew exactly what trespass meant. Because everywhere you go in, like, in the rural parts of America, there are no trespassing signs. And, uh, you know, that didn't stop me, of course. Um, <laughs> to trespass means to know there's a law and a boundary and to do it anyway. And uh, Paul's saying that we, by nature, know God's moral standard, and by nature, we trespass it. Uh, we do things we know we shouldn't, and uh, and that's pretty common. And uh, that's sort of who we are as humans. In other words, we when when you know something's wrong, you do it anyway. Um, and it's really hard for you to change that. You have a heart that's broken. You have a heart that's hard. So that's what he's saying in verse 1. In verse 2, he goes on and says that even though your heart is hard and, and maybe even dead, that doesn't mean it doesn't do anything or that you don't do anything. He, he says basically that you, you walk, you follow the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's not at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, you know, there's some active words here. Walk, follow, follow. In other words, we, we, we're active in doing the things that we're not supposed to do. And, and the, por- the portrait here almost is that of a running river of the world. And the prince of the air is sort of a reference to, you know, a great evil power at work in the world behind the scenes. That there's a course in which the world is running that is not healthy and good for the world and runs against God's will. And we gladly swim along with the course of, of where it's going. We don't swim uh, out of the stream, and we don't swim upstream. Uh, by nature, we swim downstream with it. We are complicit in it, and we embrace it. You know, So we, we can pick a number of examples uh, here regarding our own culture. Uh, and I don't want to go too in-depth in that, but I would just give you, you know, the way that our own broken hearts, sexual histories, and the use of media work together in our lives. And we fly downstream, swimming in the pool of muck uh, of, uh, of an unhealthy sexuality that exists in our culture. Another example would be consumerism in our, in our culture. Uh, how much we love stuff and we're promised that stuff will fix all our brokenness and solve all our problems. And so we have a culture. I'm not saying things are bad. I'm not saying sex is bad. I'm saying we live in a culture that perverts them. And, uh, and our hearts gravitate toward them. And we swim downstream as quickly as possible in the midst of these things complicitly uh, actively doing it so we have hearts that are easily influenced and verse three lastly um, Paul just sort of sums it up saying hey we uh, we were those that lived uh, once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and I think perhaps of everything he says this one may make the most sense to you experientially you know you have passions. You know you have desires. You know you have wants. The heart is a wanter. It wants things. And you often know the reality that it wants things it shouldn't have. 
And Paul says we are by nature people that want things we shouldn't have, and usually we think we have the right to them, and we go after them, uh, whether we really deserve them or whether they're good for us or not. And uh, in other words, our hearts are corrupt. So we have hard hearts that are easily influenced and corrupt. Uh, one really wonderful way of summarizing this whole picture of humanity uh, is at the beginning of a, a, an old movie came out 20, 30 years ago. A River Runs Through It. It's a great movie. Um, and at the beginning, we're introduced to the family and the narrator's the older brother and the narrator's talking about his dad. His dad, he says, my father was a Scottish Presbyterian, which means he thought humanity was a damn mess. And that's the portrait we have here, the, the first three verses, that humanity's a mess. And uh, I, uh, I'm not saying, and nor is Paul saying, that Humanity in general, or any individual in general, is as bad as they can be. It's not saying that. But he is painting a portrait where our individual general natures and humanity as a general in general are given over to their desires, carried along by the course of the world, and incapable of changing itself. And uh, yeah, you know, he sort of sums it up by saying we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind, uh, sort of born out of it and destined for it and uh, you know you may, you may ask yourself like wow this is really hard Paul is it, is it really that bad and and if so like Derek why in the world would you begin our semester studying on grace with this description um, why happy happy you haven't figured it out Derek everyone thinks you're a sourpuss you're going to start with this description of humanity um, you know there's a study that came out just last week it was a small sample size so it just may be anecdotal I think Stanford did it um, but they talked to a number of uh, major uh, medical institutions about their uh, their patients who were uh, in advanced stages of cancer and what they did was they talked to the patients themselves and then they wanted to, they were testing the patients uh, in three areas of knowledge. Did they understand their disease? Did they understand the prognosis of the disease? Like, what's going to happen? And did they understand their treatment? So, in other words, people that are in advanced stages of cancer who are having like, really serious treatments go on, who may not have much time left. And uh, 95% of the cases, the patients did not understand what was going on. 95 is that shocking or troubling? Is it surprising? Yeah, part of the reality is uh, we don't want to know the truth about the bad news, right? We may know we have a problem, but we want to think it's not that bad. Conversely, if you're a doctor, caretaker, nurse, you just want to hope people get it. You don't want to tell them how bad it's going to be, right? You don't want to tell them, this is the worst, and you've probably got six months, and this is the treat course of treatment, and it may give you three months, but we don't know, and it'll cause you some of the worst side effects you can imagine, and you may just rather go home. Uh, we don't want to think about those kind of things, and so we don't. And, and uh, Paul here is just giving us the bad news. Like, straight up. Here you go. This is what it's like. This is the prognosis. I know it's terrible, but this is what you know to be true. Um, and again, it could be worse, but uh, this is sufficiently bad. Uh, the good news immediately breaks in uh, with one little short word here um, in verse 4. But, 
This has been called, I, I, I'm not coining this phrase, this has been called the best butt, uh, which sounds like a bad contest. Um, this has been called the best butt, like, and uh, frankly, the, the story is sufficiently bad right now just to end and say, well, what hope is there, what, why go on? Um, but, but the idea that the story continues, and, and the butt means... It not only continues, but will turn, is remarkable. And uh, it's followed by God, but God. In other words, into this messy description of humanity, we have a God who hasn't distanced himself or given up, but as we're going to say, he acts. So this is the beginning of the good news, that uh, God is the principal actor of what's going to happen right here. And as we read on, he is rich in mercy. And uh, because of his great love with which he loves his children, he acts. So we may not have our act together. We may have hearts that are hard and corrupt, but God hasn't given up caring. And he's rich in mercy. He's got plenty of mercy to give away. And uh, he has a gracious, loving heart. And what we see in the next couple of verses, uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, is how he acts. In verse 5, we're dead in our trespasses. He makes us alive together with Christ. He, uh, by grace, we've been saved. He, he does the saving. Uh, we're dead. He raises us up. Uh, with Christ. He seats us with him in the heavenly places uh, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Uh, there's some deep stuff here, and we're not going to go into all of it, but let's put it this way. The beginning verses tells us we're dead and we deserve not good stuff. And uh, this verse reminds us not only did God make us alive in him, but there is a immeasurable, vast reservoir of riches that await us in the person of Jesus. Uh, Romans uses the word lavishes. God is not a miser in his grace and love. He, he has an abundance of love and goodness that he intends for us. That is, as this text says, toward us. So he raises us up with Christ, he sets us with him, that he might lavish his love and grace on us. And verse 8 sort of summarizes it all up. By grace you've been saved, through faith. Uh, it's really important what Paul says here and how he says it. How he says it. Uh, we're not saved by our faith. Faith can easily become an effort. I just gotta believe, gotta believe, gotta believe. Uh, no, it's by grace. It's what God... It's what Jesus has done for us that saves us. Faith is how we receive the gift. That's what he says here in verse 8. This is not your own doing. In other words, you don't earn this, or you don't do this on your own. It's the gift of God. Not only the grace, but the faith as well, or gifts that the Father gives us. Uh, not as a result of work, so that no one can boast. So Paul here is making it really clear. If you're in the family of God, if you've trusted in Christ and you know Him, it's because of the work of Christ. It's because of the grace of God. And if you want to know him and join the family and uh, know his grace and love, it is not dependent on your efforts. Actually, your efforts, are, your, effort, your efforts to try will eliminate you. That is the wrong course. You cannot earn his favor. It is simply a matter of faith, receiving his gift. So uh, we have here a God who acts and a God who gives, that in the end, grace is a gift, something we can't earn, uh, something we can't boast about, something we don't deserve, something that's given to us that we receive by faith. So, um, yeah, this is a pretty stark contrast, right, uh, of ourselves, dead in sin, 
following the course of the world, floating quickly down, uh, swimming along as fast as we can to do what we want, and uh, with hearts that are corrupt. And a God who is rich in love, that pursues us in love, sends His Son for us in love, and gives us a great gift of grace uh, that we might know Him. Um, yeah, I'm going to finish with a quote that sort of summarizes this word grace. This is by a now deceased um, Episcopalian named Capon, <laughs> Robert Farrar Capon, and uh, he's writing here about the Reformation. This is a period in history couple hundred years ago when uh, some theologians like Martin Luther rediscovered uh, through texts like this that a proper relationship with God wasn't based on our efforts but based on the efforts of Jesus and the love of God for us and that we respond by faith. Um, so why are you there? Excuse me. My phone just took over and <laughs> it's not good. Um, this is really good. It's worth hanging on for. So Capon writes... It's, it's worth waiting for. Here you go. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk, because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God alone saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about your own perfection, the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly it turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, certainly no ginger ale, neither goodness nor badness, not the flowers that bloom in the spring of super-spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. So, Kavon, he's a brilliant writer, uh, is simply saying, in the end, the relationship we have with God that makes us right with Him, it's all grace. There's more, but it's all grace. That we are made right because of the work of Jesus, the love of God, and we don't earn it. And uh, it's something we receive. And uh, it's, therefore, very good. And... Uh, yeah, that's what I have to say. Questions? Question. Yes? So, uh, there are, as I'm aware, certain groups of Christians or groups of Christians that believe that there are certain criteria you must meet to receive grace. Yep. Correct. So, how do Correct. they fit in? Oh, well. Where does that come from? Um, that's a great question, Riley. I, I, I'll answer it in two ways. Um, it depends on what exactly the criteria are. So some folks will demand that uh, you have to be baptized, for instance. And uh, what I think they're doing there is putting criteria on the way you receive. They will say, okay, you, you receive grace by faith. Correct. And, uh, and faith has a component. And, and Paul says this elsewhere. Like Faith means you actually will tell people you believe. And faith should also mean you join a body of believers, which often comes through baptism. Um, but, you know, that's sort of mistaking uh, the means of reception with a criteria. Um, and uh, if you will, uh, faith has been described as the key that unlocks the door. Um, 
that's actually a somewhat problematic um, analogy because where'd you get the key and who opened the door for you? Um, but it's, it's close to that. Uh, it's one of those deals where God provided the key and opened the door. Uh, in some ways, if you think about these wrongly with these, with these steps, just like with faith, you can think about faith as something you have to do and conjure it up. You, you do have to believe. You have to trust in Christ. But, but you can't make yourself, actually. Just like uh, a baptism won't necessarily save you either. So that's one. Uh, the, 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 the bigger, more common problem is what Capon says. You know, it has to be drunk straight. And it's human nature to say, that's too strong. That can't be. We can't take it like that. It's human nature to say, but I have to do something. Um... I have to perform or God won't really love me. It can't be that good. This is too good to be true. And so we try to contribute to our own salvation. You know, God does 99%, we do 1% or something like that. And, uh, and you know, the, the verse 10 here sort of tells us where our own works fit into the equation. That God, out of his own grace, even planned works for us. But it's all in response that's on the other side. That he has saved us by grace, granted us faith, and as a result of his grace, we have faith and works. This, the, the faith and works is on this side of the equation as a glad response to what he's done. So the works don't earn us the grace. They're a response to the grace. And uh, they indicate, you know, as we do these things, as we love others and love God, that we really have received that grace. But it's so easy to think, man, this equation is too good to be true. I've got to earn God's favor. And I think we're just deeply wired to be insecure about God's love. We're not used to our own fathers loving us this way. So we think we have to earn his love and perform. And so we put the works on the wrong side of the equation, thinking we have to earn it. Yeah. This is what makes Christianity different than every other religion. Not not all religions are alike in this, but Christianity is certainly different. And, and And the... and the idea that our works are on the other side of the equation, that it's ultimately the work of Jesus that makes us right, faith by which we receive it, and then we work in response to a Father that loves us. So, As you just noticed from my answer to that question, if you ask a question, you will not get a short answer. Um, so you've been warned. Um, but you know, this does mean I take your question seriously. Any other questions? It also doesn't mean I'll actually answer your question well. I might talk for a long time and uh, still not answer your question, but but I am going to try. So, other questions? So I have a lot of friends that when I talk to them about um, the first concept of us being innately sinful, mm-hmm. um, I think they understand the concept of like the concept itself, and they'll they'll understand my perspective. They don't necessarily agree with like the innate sinfulness thing, and I'm, I've never been quite sure on how to maybe provide an example or um, I get not not prove, but kind of like give them something to think about when it comes to yeah. that. Because I think if if they accept the, the innate sinfulness of themselves, even then it's a lot easier for them to understand the rest. Of yeah, you ask, a, you ask a great question. None of us are well-equipped for seeing ourselves honestly and truly. By nature, we're good at self-deception. We, we, we tend to 
for the most part, think of ourselves as better than we are. And at times, we tend to despair of how bad we are. Um, but I really sort of do truly believe, you know, uh, one of these famous theologians behind me said that the heart of true religion is knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And it's really hard to see which one comes first. Because a true knowledge of self will drive you to God. Once you see what you're really like, then you'll say, I, I can't possibly do this on my own. I can't possibly be good enough. And you'll throw yourself at the mercy of God. And that's what happened to me. I, I grew up. In a, in a system of Christianity that was a little legalistic. I sort of got the, no one said this overtly, I got the impression that if you were good enough, performed well enough, that you were in. And I thought I was good enough and performed well enough. I was certainly better than people around me, it seemed. And uh, until I really got a, a good sense of, frankly, how unloving I was. The heart of, heart of the Christian moral commandments are love God, love others. So you can do a bunch of things right and still completely get a zero on loving God and loving others. I just came to a point around 16, 17 where I realized, like, I don't love anyone. Like, I don't love anyone at all. No one. And uh, once I got a heart, uh, like a glance of that, I just knew, like, it's it's over for me. Like, I, whatever reclamation project I'm trying to do. It's done. Like, if, if, if God doesn't step in and fix this mess, then I don't know what I can do. The problem is, like, there's nothing you can say or do to make that happen. Uh, the, the best thing you can do is be honest about yourself in some ways. And so I've shared this illustration before. Again, you ask me a question, you get a long answer. Um, I think being humble and honest about yourself, and this is not saying everything about yourself, of course, but there are ways to do this that sort of let people know what's really going on. I have a pastor friend who was working in his office. If you've heard this story, you can raise your hand. Um, he was working in his office one day. His janitor came in. His janitor had been a convict for 20 or 30 years. He was now in his 60s. And uh, this pastor and him had been having these kind of open conversations for quite some time. He walks into the office and says, Pastor, I just don't know if there's any hope for me. And uh, the pastor's like, what are you talking about? Actually, he said it more like, what are you talking about? Um, he's from like rural Georgia. And, uh, and he's like, you know me. I, you know my history and I haven't changed. And you know, I haven't been back to prison, but I really haven't changed. And uh, the pastor said to this former convict, now in the 60s, uh, we talking about I'm worse than you, and uh, anybody heard this? You guys hear this? Yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, uh, and, and the janitor's like, "What do you mean you're worse than me? You're a pastor. You love your wife. You have good kids. I hear your messages." And, and the pastor simply said, "Listen, this is what's going to happen. We're going to have this conversation, and then you're going to go back to your work and you're going to clean some floors. I'm going to go back to this sermon, and probably in a couple of years you're going to die and go to hell, and I'm probably not going to even think about it." Like, it was a very honest confession of how selfish and self-centered the pastor was. And the janitor sort of sat there and looked at him for a minute and said, Wow, you're right. You are worse than me. <laughs> like, I mean, he was just being honest in a very disarming way. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think you can do that with some people. And it's not going to get them all the way. At some point, it's the work of God that shows people what they're really like. I don't think you have to convince... Everybody, and you, can, and you can't, that humanity sucks and we're going to hell in a handbasket. I, I don't talk that way. You know, there's plenty of evidence that things aren't working the way they're supposed to. Um, you know, we're, we're called to love people well and hope they get a good glimpse of themselves. And uh, sometimes that's the best we can do. Yeah. Any other questions? Hey, by the way, uh, when somebody asks a question, feel free to contribute. That's true for staff and anybody else that wants to uh, jump in and and help out a bit. So, other questions?
Yes. Um, I think that a lot of like people I go to school with and people that I'm close to have trouble with like the opposite side of the coin, like seeing how like you said, like we always think that the equation is the other way around because society tells us that. Mm-hmm. Um and just like with being successful or being not successful or mm-hmm. what we think of as failure or like body image or things like that. It's mm-hmm. just very hard to always remind others and remind myself that like we don't do anything to deserve it, but we have it. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is how to like continuously remind said person about it's great. It's great. I love your honesty and, and your question. So uh, one thing I didn't talk about here, but you just mentioned it, and, and the Bible talks about this in other places. The human heart does a couple of things consistently. This first three verses here talks about how the human heart does what it wants. Like it chases sin and does what it wants. Elsewhere in the Bible, the, 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 it also tells us that the human heart tries to justify itself. This is sort of the answer to your question, Riley. Uh, by nature, we think we can perform well enough to please God. And we actually try to justify or validate ourselves in all kinds of ways. Morally, we work hard to try to please God. We hope God grades on a curve and we outperform this person and this person on the bell curve, so we must be all right. But also we try to validate ourselves by our academics, our looks, our service, and everything else. And we try to create this composite resume that gives us a check plus plus, or maybe just a D. We get by. Um, We hope it's enough. And uh, the good news of the gospel is that both aspects of that effort of the heart are are wrong-headed in failures. That um, the fact that our hearts chase after things that they're not supposed to, and that doesn't mean all desires are bad. There are all kinds of wonderful, great desires, of course. Um, it just means that we tend to pervert the good ones. Um, but also our desire to justify ourselves and validate ourselves is also wrong-headed. And I think we need to be a little suspicious of ourselves. Um, I, I need to be careful the way I say that, because those of you who know me well are like, you're suspicious of everyone. Uh, well, yeah, it's true. Um <laughs> But I, I'm just asking you to be a little suspicious of yourself. Uh, Callie uses the phrase, doubt your doubts. And uh, yeah, and that's, that's been thrown around by others. And in some ways what I'm saying is, yeah, sort of, sort of it's, it's good to be great. It's good to be excellent. Go be great and excellent. Just don't think that's going to make you right with anyone or God or any other guy's going to be impressed. Uh, and, you know, I just think the ultimate litmus test, frankly, comes down to the cross of Jesus. Uh, and, and he didn't go into great detail about that here, but he will. The cross of Jesus is the ultimate signal to mankind, especially to us that are trying to prove ourselves, that our reclamation, personal reclamation projects will ultimately end in failure. If we could fix ourselves, why did Jesus have to die? You know, um, and uh, it's not only a measure of our ultimate failure that we, we can't do it, uh, it's also a wonderful reminder of the depths of God's love. So verses 1 through 3, this is what we're like. This is why Jesus had to die for us. So we just, if Jesus really died for us, it probably means we couldn't save ourselves. But the good news here is God was willing to do that for us, out of love for us. And uh, so I think the way you reorient back to the truth is to consider the cross. Uh, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's the thing that keeps us grounded. All right.
That was a lot of good questions. Thanks, guys. Hey, a couple of uh, resources uh, if you're more in- uh, interested a little bit more in the topic of grace. I forgot about this this little booklet called What is Grace?